Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Before we get going today, I have a very big announcement. After a ton of requests for a place for expat and expat hopefuls to network and get to know each other, I decided to start a new Facebook group. It's called the Expat Money Forum, and it's 100% free to join. We literally just started the group, so you can really network and get to know the individuals there. We will be keeping a very close eye on this group, and I already have three awesome moderators volunteer to help me out. So to make it easy on you, I set up a really simple redirect link. All you have to do to join this group right now is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum. We already have a bunch of previous guests from my show in the group, so you can ask your questions directly to the professionals, or get help from the people who are on the ground in the country you are interested in being an expat in. So I hope that you will join us in our new Facebook group by going to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum, and I will see you there. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is in his fifth decade in the financial world and is an outlier of sorts. He is the editor and publisher of The National Investor, a twice-monthly publication that distinguishes the knowledge he provides from the oceans of mere information that people typically have to wade through. Please welcome to the show, Chris Temple. Chris, how are you? Hey, great, Mikhail. Great to be back with you again, too. Well, it's my pleasure. You know, you and I have become quite fast friends over the last year or so. You know, you were a speaker at my conference. I think out of 27 presentations, you were one of the two most popular presentations, not just in views, but pissing people off and and getting a reaction. (laughs) Well, I'm an equal opportunity pisser offer. I call things as I see them. I, and that's I'm not... why I respect you so much. I, I, I do love that about you, sir. So why don't we start and kind of give us a backstory. How did you get working in the financial space and financial newsletters and financial, you know, helping people to, to uh, decipher everything that's happening in the world? Well, I'll tell you, I never knew him way back when I first started in this business, but to give you some flavor of how I approach things, one of my heroes of my life, Mikel, and a guy who I was very privileged to know uh, on a personal level, I was on this platform with him on a few different occasions back when, 
was the 1996 Libertarian Party presidential candidate, Harry Brown, Harry who Brown. you may know also did a financial newsletter and was in the same business. But well before I knew him, I was fresh out of high school in 1979 and uh, didn't quite know for sure yet what I wanted to do. So I kind of had one foot in the, I guess, camp, if you will, that my folks wanted me to be in and some people expected me to be in. I was going mm -hmm. to be an accountant at IBM okay. where I grew up in upstate New York. In those days, IBM had 30,000 employees. Today, it has none where <laughs> I grew up. They're gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I was looking at that, so I was going to go for that career. But at the same time, I knew some people locally that had a financial planning firm uh, in, in the Binghamton, New York area. And I put a foot over there. And even as I was going to what turned out to be my one and only year of college, I got my insurance and investment licenses and started in the financial planning business. And I loved it. You know, I, I, was, I wasn't intimidated, even though my clients were old enough at least to be you know, grandparents or great grandparents, as the case may be. And so I rolled up my sleeves and decided that's what I wanted to do. But like everybody that gets into that industry uh, experiences, Mikkel, I was trained to sell products. I mean, I don't care what label you put on yourself, financial planner, financial advisor, whatever. You're, you're trained not to understand what makes the world and the markets work, but how to have people fill out the paperwork and make out the checks properly for whatever you're trying to sell them. And it was interesting at the time that I got into this because we were at the tail end of a big inflationary move. Interest rates went up afterwards. We had markets go one way and then boom, reverse into the other direction based on Paul Volcker's policies as Fed chairman back then. And the most helpless feeling in the world that I had up to that point in my still young life, Mikkel, was when people were asking me why all these changes were taking place, I didn't know. I didn't know what to tell them. I didn't understand how this stuff worked. I'd ask my boss. I'd ask the people whose mutual funds were selling. What are we supposed to do? And they all told you the same thing. Oh, you're in it for the long term. Just write it out. You know, don't try and time the market. Now, in hindsight, that was the biggest policy change ever in the Federal Reserve's history. And if we're so darn smart, why didn't we understand what the logical consequences were going to be and get our clients out of harm's way or into those things that would benefit? And I resolved then and there. That's the last time that's ever going to happen to me. And over the years, I got out of the conventional world, if you will, as far as retail financial planning. I stayed in there for, in, in some capacity for quite a long time after that, but decided to roll up my sleeves, figure out what makes all this work, among many other things, it's led to my signature presentation, which I call Understanding the Game, where I explain to people the basics of how the fractional reserve system we have today works, what central banking is about, how that has morphed into the different things that the markets do today, based on ever-increasing activism from the Fed, based on huge debt levels, based on our world turning more and more socialist and collectivist as part of the whole process as well. And really, Mikkel, when you understand these things, it's not all that hard to figure out what's coming next in most respects. But most people, you know, just as we do with politics, just as we do with societal issues, people get fitted into where they're supposed to be. You know, you're supposed to be on the left, you're supposed to be on the right, 
Here's what you can believe. Here's what you, we're going to feed you, but don't stray outside of that. You know, don't listen to the men behind the curtain. <laughs> don't don't dig uh, for facts and truths on your own. Uh, I, I'm I guess I'm too much of a rebel to to listen to those kind of things. So, well, and I know in, in private end, conversations, you and I have talked about um, you know the Federal Reserve, and we've dug deep, and we talked about G. Edward Griffin and some of his books, and you actually spent a lot of the time that. He got a lot of his ideas from, if I remember correctly, and um, you've really studied in depth on those types of things. So, you know, your insight in those conversations with me have been really monumental on how I view things as well. Well, I'm glad. And, you know, that's uh, we all have our roles in life. God gives us different talents and, and uh, you know, we have to use them to the best of our ability. Mine is to be very inquisitive, to understand things. And more important, which is what we're doing today, is to be able to pass that knowledge on to others so that it's of use to, to you and to them. Perfect. Well, I mean, there's just so many things to unpack there. I mean, mentoring under Harry Brown is just First of all, I, and you know, I've said this before, like, that's amazing. I've read so much of his work, uh, his books and things. I would love to actually get a copy of some of his old newsletters or something like that. That would be such fascinating. I've got a handful of them in my files among my prized possessions. Okay. Well, you'll, maybe you'll have to scan a couple of them I'll, and send them that. over. For me. <laughs> okay. So today I want to get into um, the markets, but specifically, okay. So, so while we're recording this, it, the election is just around the corner. Like we're we're days away from the election. I thought it would be fun today to get your your take on what will happen if we get a Biden presidency, what we will get if we get another four years of Trump, and and how the markets are likely to respond to these types of things. So I don't know where the best place is to jump in, where you want to start, or if you think that there's any information the listeners should have before we get into this this discussion. But um, yeah, like I'm super excited to learn from you. Well, look, first of all, Mikkel, um, I call things as I see them. I tell people that when it comes to the markets, um, you know, just to throw one example of many I could out there, you know, the gold space. Uh, I'm not right about things all the time, but I've probably been more accurate in my calls in the gold area than the gold bucks, uh, those I call the pipe pipers of the gold bug echo chamber, because I look at things dispassionately. I look at things as they are. And though philosophically, I'm probably as much as or more of a gold bug than the gold bugs are as a practical matter, I'm not, because markets behave differently today. In fact, one of the publications that I probably got more traction out of in 2020 than any was uh, one that I did that was entitled, This is Not Your Father's Gold Market. You know, when I was first getting in this business over 40 years ago, you had a huge move up in gold. What drove that is so different than what we have 40 years later. I mean, we, we, you and I could spend an hour not even touch all of that if that's all we talked about. So I, I wanted to preface that. So politics, look, I once upon a time was very active in conventional party politics, mostly on a Republican and conservative side. I was, I was a foot soldier in the religious right back in the 1980s. Uh, during much of the 90s, I was in Washington, back and forth working on different things. But by that time, I was already starting to see through the facade, the scripted left versus right, Republican versus Democrat stuff, and to learn how things really work. So the way I look at things, and, and you've got people today, is, is our society has become polarized and dumbed down 
at the same time. Not a very good combination if you want to have an intelligent conversation with anybody. Okay, uh, I've I look at things not left, right, Republican, Democrat, but what is the agenda of the deep state? What is the agenda of global capitalism, and what is the agenda of globalization? And okay, so let's pause. Let's pause sure. for a second, because okay. usually, not usually, but a lot of times, every time people are talk about the deep state, the first thing that they're going to say is conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory. You're you're a kook. You're a nut. You know, uh, there's there's no. What did you say before? No man behind the curtain type of thing. Yeah. Um, what do you have to say to that? Just so we can set a, a bit of a stage here. What I have to say to that, Mikel, is simply this, that you have people behind what we see visibly in front of us, presidents and congressmen and senators and cabinet officials and so forth, that have an agenda. The agenda has been, certainly since the end of the Second World War, that the U.S. is the preferably undisputed king of the hill globally. The U.S. dollar is the globe's reserve currency. The U.S. military will enforce that by force if necessary, and our policies are going to influence what goes on in the world. Voters, whether they call themselves Republican or Democrat, don't go out overtly and vote for that, as far as they know. They're not going to do it a few days from now. But when you look at history, and I was greatly pleased and privileged that also on your uh, uh, week-long webinar series that we had in June that John Perkins was on there as well. He's also one of my heroes, and he's the one that's pointed this out before most people knew what was going on, that, that this country has sinister forces behind the scenes, and you can call it what you want, but the evidence is out there. The evidence of this government's clandestine forces and or military as the case may be, if somebody gets their nose out of joint, we'll go in, we'll overthrow, we'll, we'll bomb a country and so forth. Look at this whole thing in the recent past, not to get too far off on a tangent, of Ukraine. I mean, President Trump, for crying out loud, was impeached over accusations and went through hell on, on that and many other things. Joe Biden is on tape, on a videotape at the Council on Foreign Relations, bragging, bragging about while as vice president forcing Ukraine to fire the prosecutor, investing some of the dirty business with his connections and his son. But that's OK. And the distinction between the two. Joe Biden, for almost 50 years, has been 110% bought and paid for errand boy for the deep state. And Trump, as stupid as he is intellectually sometimes, is enough of a loose cannon and doesn't trust him that he's the guy that we're going to go after on a lark and on a rumor and on a concocted story while we leave the deep state guy alone. Okay, so one of the predictions I'll make, folks, is that if Joe Biden wins the election, the narrative has been that he sold us out to China. He's been China's errand boy also and has all these dealings. Guess what? He will be a, an equally energetic and better organized prosecutor of the new Cold War with China, not because it's what he thought of. He does what he's told. I mean, if, if, if his handlers told him to come out tomorrow in a speech and identify as a hamster, he'll do that. Okay. 
but he's going to prosecute this because that's the agenda now. You've got military, you've got economic, you've got security, you've got intellectual property, all these different issues. And just like the people who helped enable the Soviet Union as a first order to become a world power as a, quote, ally in World War II, and then all of a sudden, oh, they're the bad guy. We got to spend zillions of dollars on the military industrial complex to defend us from our own creation. So too did some of these same people, same philosophies, create China. China would be nothing as it is today were it not for Western money, Western corporations creating this outpost, this great manufacturing center that started out for them. Now China thinks it's supposed to be for them. Okay. And so now we're going to be God knows how long in a new Cold War with China. And you better believe that Joe Biden is, is going to be on that team because that's what he's told to do because that's the deeper agenda. So look, and then I'll shut up for a second. <laughs> Bill Clinton. You keep going because I like the rants. The rants are Bill good. Clinton yeah. got a lot of votes from true progressives. And I, I distinguish progressives from Democrats. Okay. Progressives hate Hillary Clinton more than most Republicans do. Progressives had, were thoroughly disappointed by her husband. They were thoroughly disappointed by Barack Obama, who, when he got elected in 2008, holy cow, here is an acolyte of Saul Alinsky, this, this Marxist, soft Marxist uh, community organizer, and so forth. What did he do? Okay. He kept a deep state agenda rolling right along. You know, he did a little bit here, a little bit there, but the, the, the man got a Nobel Peace Prize and bond women and children in several different countries. So we're not going to get anything different with Biden. We'll get things at the margins and you and I might get into what would happen if you know, we get a Biden win and a Republican Senate or Democrat Senate, because that'll change a few things. Okay. So then with the deep state, what do you think the deep state is? Do you think it is some uh, Illuminati special group? Or do you think it is just lifetime uh, politicians who can't be fired, who are just one step back, but hold enough power that they can influence things uh, in one direction or another? Or is it something completely different? Well, it, it's it's probably all of the all of the above, Mikkel. But I think to keep things simple, Look at when the Democrat administrations have come in in the last 20 or 30 years and Republicans come in. They all bring back the same people. I mean, even Donald Trump, a guy who was supposed to drain the swamp. Right. That's what we heard. He drained a few things. He rearranged a few of the alligators. And by and large, when you look at the people that that he is ending his first term, maybe his only term, we don't know yet, with there's still some of the same swamp creatures. I saw somebody put a great uh, little mem out the other day. This Washington's not a swamp. It's a federal, federally protected wetland. <laughs> and you don't touch it. I don't care who the hell you are. You don't touch it. Okay. So you've got all of this stuff. on. Uh, it comes out that the Hilda Beast, lo and behold, she did cook up this whole Russia thing. You got Gina Haspel at the CIA. You've got Chris Ray running the FBI. You've got Mr. Barr running the overall Justice Department. And as you and I are recording on this, they're trying, it seems like they're trying to run out the clock. A couple little things dribble out because you can't keep it all in. But I'll tell you something, and this is how you're going to prove that the Republicans, as much as a lot of the Democrats, just kind of go along with a program. If Biden wins, 
And even if the Republicans keep the Senate, do you think that even a Republican committee in the Senate will make sure all of these different investigations stay alive? No. No. We got better things to do. Hey, we got to worry about mineral security. We've got to worry about the green economy. We've got to worry about human rights violations in China. There's a lot of other things to do. And this, you know, Trump was an aberration. He's a one-term president. He was a mistake of history. That's going to be the narrative. The guy who was an interloper and tragically, if he loses, tragically might have been the last best hope for something decent to be done. He'll be gone. It'll be back to business as usual. You won't have a president with that's a loose cannon. And as I suggested a minute ago, Mikhail, in some respects, Biden presidency, with all of the deep state hands firmly in charge, uh, it will be a better organized effort to prosecute the Cold War with China, among other things. So why do you think Trump gets away with being such a loose cannon? Is it because people... And, and maybe this has kind of been my guess. It's like, you know, there's proof, uh, quote unquote, that he's a racist and a misogynist and he's cheated on his wife and he's gone out and had gangbangs and stuff like that. And he knows that there's photos of him doing all this stuff, but he just doesn't care. Like, my guess is like a lot of the other politicians are like, oh, my God, that'll be ruining me. And I don't want that all over CNBC and Squawk Box and Fox and MSN, you know, but maybe he just goes, you know what? I don't care. Like people knew this stuff about him and they elected him anyways. Do you think that's some of the reasons maybe why they don't have such a, a stranglehold on him like they do on some of the other guys? We will just take a quick break. Over the last couple of years of building up the expat money show and escape artist, I have been interviewed more than 100 times on podcasts, news programs, blogs, magazines, and newspapers. Well, recently I was a guest on the Brian Nichols show and he was one of the best hosts I have ever met. I immediately started messaging my friends and business contacts that they needed to listen to the show right now. The show is for people who are tired of partisan politics, who are having trouble finding objective news without the media narrative, and for folks who want to expand their skills and understanding of complex issues as they learn from noted entrepreneurs, elected officials, C-level executives, economists, and more. The show has been going for nearly three years, and now with three episodes per week, there is a ton to keep you entertained and informed. Their flagship show airs on Friday mornings right after the Expat Money Show. So you can literally listen to a new episode of the Expat Money Show, then immediately listen to the Brian Nichols Show on your favorite podcasting app. Noted guests include Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, Dr. Joe Jorgensen, Matt Kibbe, Brad Palumbo, Mark Lobliner, Austin Peterson, Jason Stapleton, Larry Sharp, and of course, me, Mikkel Thorpe, on episode 133. So what I want you to do right now is put this episode on pause and go and subscribe and turn on notifications to The Brian Nichols Show. That's B-R-I-A-N-N-I-C-H-O-L-S Show. And if you go to briannicholsshow.com or if you search for Brian Nichols on your favorite podcasting app, you'll find it there. Okay, let's jump back into the episode. Well, I think it is partly. I also think that Donald Trump, as imperfect uh, and, and woefully inadequate historically a person 
as he is for the job that he came into, that does have elements of his being and of his psyche that believe some of this stuff. He knows that this country has been screwed over by China for, for decades, you know, with the with an assist from Biden, with an assist from almost everybody he ran against Republican primaries, for that matter. He knows that. He knows that America and Americans have gotten a short end of the stick on a lot of different things. He's right about that. The unfortunate thing, among others, Mikkel, is, is first of all, as far as really understanding details, he has none or very little. I mean, talk, listening to him talk about China, for example, and trade things. And look, the big picture, I've been very supportive of, of his uh, trying to call out China on so many things. But when you hear him talk about how we got into this mess, more so what he thinks we need to do to get out of it, this is like listening to Archie Bunker and Barney Hefner and the boys at Kelsey's Bar, Ventner's Spleens, okay? Yeah, maybe they're right about the problems and stuff, but with utterly no idea and sophistication, how do you get out of this? How do you do it right? You know, with some of the tariff policies, it was like using a sledgehammer when scalpels should have been used. I mean, look, I don't want to be unfair and be just a Monday morning quarterback. History will show that he was a transition. As ham-fisted and disorganized and, you know, today it's this, tomorrow it's that, he was a transition that in some respects was used to set up this now new Cold War with China that we're going to have going into the future. So I, I think that Another thing I need to point out here, because it was my personal biggest disappointment, having been a Trump supporter in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, I, I again, I, I don't take it as left versus right. I'm looking at what is good for America, what is good for freedom and liberty and everything else. My simple view back then, Mikkel, was that with Hillary Clinton, you, don't, you know you've got a 110% establishment-owned person. She's one of them. With Donald Trump, as rough as he is, as gruff as he is, personally, as much of an asshole as he is, you know you've got a chance that something good is going to be done for the people and for the country. The most disappointing thing, though, which cost him my support this time around, and get to your original question, why is he allowed to continue and dangle? And look, they, the, the, <laughs> the establishment's been giving him fits all the way along. He enjoys it, partly, because that's the New York you know, you know, sharp elbows bullying him. But when you have a guy like him, after all of his promises that brags that he's got the biggest military budget of all time, that's it. Because to me, that one of the biggest reasons to vote for him in 2016 was he said he was going to end that. He was going to do away with it. And maybe he intended to do it. But if you remember, the first person that the establishment went after that he wanted on his team was General Flynn. Who was, a, who was a hero. He's a libertarian. He wanted to end the, the what was left of the Cold War with Russia, while the Democrats are jockeying to see who's going to be the new chairman of the John Birch Society with all the Russians are coming bullshit that they have constantly to cover up with what they're doing. So um, I, I think that he, in some respects, has made the military industrial complex very happy. And lest you forget, and this is never discussed, okay, it's all the this just goofy Democrat narrative over Russia. And I, I, I got a cartoon I pass around all the time, two puppies, you know, you just came in the house and you got these puppies looking at you. We're glad you're home. The Russians just pooped in the hallway you know, kind of thing. 
because to them, everything is, is covered up by, oh, the Russians did it, the Russians did it. Look, Donald Trump has encouraged and enabled the continuing ongoing NATO buildup and encirclement of Russia, never discussed. So I wanted a president and thought we were getting one who was going to stop all that. He really didn't. Uh, Joe Jorgensen, who actually was Harry Brown's running mate in 1996. And uh, you know, if, if she were elected, she, she won't be. Uh, she would be a president who would stop that. Yeah, but even if we get, you know, even if the LP can get, you know, between five and seven percent of the votes, I think that's for for the LP. That's a that is a win. You know, yeah. that is a, a a growing of the party because I I mean, there's no way it's going to happen all in one term. No. And so, okay. So, what about people like Rand Paul, who's coming out and saying, you know, um, Trump is ending the war in Afghanistan. Trump saying, I'm going to end the war in Afghanistan. I'm bringing everybody home. Like, what do you have to say to that? That is one of the good things he's done. No question about it. He he is he has wanted to get us out of the Middle East, and that's no question to his credit. He correctly, when he was running for president, pointed to both the Democrats and Republicans, Mikel, as having screwed up everything that they've touched foreign policy wise. So no question, that's a good thing. Um, but the problem is Trump is of a mindset. When you look at his whole history about money, about leverage, about influence, that he has been convinced somehow, and I don't know where this starts, I'm not a fly on the wall, but he is convinced somehow that while these Middle Eastern wars and the war in Afghanistan, just there, there's no strategic purpose left to him anymore. We already so screwed up the Middle East that, that there's not much of a point to do much of anything there these days. But what convinced him? to turn around and continue to grow NATO to the point where this silly Brazil we're going to bring into NATO? Trump wanted, what the hell is Brazil going to do in NATO? So again, this, this, unfortunately, at times this reverts to a guy who thinks just power and braggadocio and money, not money, debt, okay, is, is going to make him big and tough and make America big and tough. And, and how he was so easily talked into that, I don't know. I got to share something. This is as good as time as any. You know, I, on my website, and it's still there, I, I had a section from a newsletter of mine at the beginning of October where I talk a lot about what the consequences of a Biden presidency might be for the markets, for the new Cold War with China, and for a lot of different things. And, and I'll say it again here because, again, I, I love this country. I was born here. I'll probably die here. And, and, you know, I, I, I just am saddened to see another missed opportunity in history because we had a guy who really wasn't all that he, he was billed to be, even to his supporters, let alone the people with Trump derangement syndrome who just hate him with such a blind and visceral hatred that, I mean, Trump could go out and save a black family from a burning building and the headline would be he let the building burn down. I mean, it's just silly. But but, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but if Donald Trump, Mikhail, had the personal charm and affability of a Ronald Reagan, and he had the intellectual curiosity and brain power and empathy of a Jimmy Carter, he'd be emperor. We'd be wanting to repeal the, the, the amendment in the Constitution after Roosevelt and have the guy king for life. Because what a lot of people still forget 
is that the great majority of what he ran on is what this country needs and wants. But we keep being, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly Charlie Brown. And we run up, we think we can kick the football and, and, and the powers that be pull it away. Ah, we got you again. Vote for the other party. You'll get it next time. And yeah, you get it. You, you get it where the sun doesn't shine. So what do you think then about the Middle East? Because let's dig into the Middle East a little bit. I mean, so right now, like he's brought some of the troops home. Then he's expanded the military. Now Rand Paul is saying he's going to, they're going to pull everybody out of Afghanistan. You know, a lot of the questions are when he's brokered the deal or or his administration have helped broker the deal between Israel and Bahrain in the UAE, where I used to live. I mean, the flights came out of Abu Dhabi to Israel, you know, my friends were talking about it. I was I was messaging back and forth with the people while this is going on. What do you think is going to happen in the Middle East? Do you think that if he if he were to uh, continue for another four years, I should say? Look, on that, and again, I want to be fair, and I call things as I see him. On the Middle East, he's done a great job. Uh, the Middle East was so destroyed by the last three or four presidents, Republican and Democrat alike, that, that you know, there's a lot of work to do. I think here again, with his personal dynamics, this time being an advantage, uh, among other things, with his family and so forth, I think that he's done some great stuff there. If he were president for four more years, I don't think that you would see any further attempts uh, on the part of the U.S. to be sending troops in there or to meddle in there very much. You know, from time to time, you might have a, an isolated hit uh, against somebody that uh, we're told is a bad guy, uh, as he did with Soleimani in, in Iran. But aside from that, I think it would be great. And, and one of the many counterintuitive things that people need to keep in the back of their mind is that this is one of the risks, actually, uh, of all things, of a Biden win. Is, is that you would see the deep state, you would see the military and, and these espionage and cloak and dagger people back in charge. And I, I hate to say this, but history is a guide here that there would be a, a better chance of having more flare-ups and, and a reinsertion of America into some of these places under President Biden more than under President Trump. Because one of the reasons that we actually left the Middle East was because things were heating up so much with Iran. And, you know, I went to Iran in 2012 um, when I thought that we were going to get World War III. It was 2011, 2012, sometime around then. And, you know, this was before a lot of the other countries had fallen in the Middle East. You know, before we had Libya go down, before Syria went up in flames, you know, I wanted to... I was worried that if we entered into a war, and I say we with quotation marks, entered into a war with Iran, that it wasn't just going to be another one-off. This was really going to be another world war. So, you know, I went there, I, I visited the country, I met the people, and okay, I, I'm, I'm certainly no fan, fan of the government there. I'm not a fan of any government, to be fair. But I mean, the people themselves were so lovely and just so gentle and so sweet. Now, this time around, I just I just couldn't handle it again. And I knew that they would be using the UAE really as a staging ground for entering into Iran. And I just couldn't handle it. So so we actually left the Middle East. This is all pre-COVID. And, and I'm very happy to see that they haven't gone forwards with invading Iran. Do you think that uh, going with a Biden presidency, if we got a Biden presidency, do you think that would be back on the table? It's hard to say because the... Uh standard 
or the the accepted wisdom, I guess, in political circles, and you have to take it with a pound of salt, not just a grain of salt, is that Biden would seek, well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to fix things because Trump abrogated the nuclear treaty with Iran, and I'll put it back in because we're I'm, I'm, my uh, my pay grade and security grade isn't enough to know who's really telling the truth behind all of that. You might even have better insights on that than me. But um, I, I just don't trust the people in the military, the people in the State Department, the people at the CIA, who, to justify their existence, have to stir up whatever they can stir up. I guess that's what I come down to. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... I understand what you're saying about the Middle East. Let's jump back into China because, I mean, that is the the real hotspot. That's where we're going to be seeing a lot of activity happening in the coming years. I mean, a lot of my audience knows my ties to China and uh, my experiences in the country. But I, I want to get a little bit of your insight on maybe what we can expect, what would happen under, I, I want to always play this, you know, if we get a Trump, if we get a Biden, uh, what's going to be in store for us, for lack of a better word? Well, look, I, I am unfortunately of the view that we now have a new Cold War with China. You've had in the recent past, Secretary of State Pompeo is circling the wagons uh, or helping other countries, whether it's Australia, Japan, Taiwan. Uh, you've had this blow up with Hong Kong. There have been threats on the Trump administration's part to break the dollar peg or force that, uh, which is a very dangerous thing. Um, you know, and, and look, there are times, and I think some of those around President Trump, and this is where he's been conflicted. I mean, most of the time, if you look at the corporate and Wall Street interests, if we can just you know label them as that, and the military industrial complex. They're, they're, they've got the same objectives the majority of the time, kind of like Don Lucchese said in The Godfather Part Three: our ships must sail in the same direction. But on this, they diverge. The corporate and Wall Street interests have never wanted this tariff and trade war. They've been critical of Trump over this. Uh, they've called him a buffoon and, and a hack and, and, and whatnot, which in some ways intellectually he's been on this, even if he's got the big picture right. So on the other hand, you've got the, the, the deep state, the military that sees China, and correctly so in some respects, as a, a major, if not scary, global competitor now that has long since taken a place of the old Soviet Union. And if they had their way, China would be knocked down several pegs. Now, what some of these people, and, and I think you've got some people, you give people power and money and influence and, and almost a free hand at things. You know, people sometimes are stupid and sometimes can be evil. You know, you don't want to see, you, you know, the history. You've also followed John Perkins, all the dirty stuff that this country has done over the years to lots of third world countries and so forth. You know, we, we talk, the Democrats especially are hysterical about uh, Vladimir Putin buying a few Facebook ads to, quote, influence the election horrors. Well, they're, they're pikers. We don't like somebody's governance. We'll go in and kill somebody. I live in Panama. What do you think happened here? Like, right. That's right. Look what happened in <laughs> they Noriega. They dropped bombs on them here. Like, That's right. So so we know how to do it right, the, the people who run this country. But there's, there's a big difference between today and the old Soviet Union. When Ronald Reagan, as president, decided to pursue the policy to basically outspend, really outborrow, 
and, and wear down the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union ultimately had a financial crisis and had a rolling collapse for a few years, didn't mean a whole hell of a lot to the global economy. Yeah, the Soviet Union militarily was, you know, uh, the the equal in some respects to the U.S. globally, but the, their economy wasn't a rounding error when you look at it in the context of the whole global economy. Today, China's the second largest economy in the world. You've got way more at stake here. And if these crazy bastards think that they can cripple China, uh, destroy Hong Kong's banking system, which is the most leveraged on the planet, and a conduit to China, and, and that we wouldn't have blowback from that, they're really crazy. So these are some of the kind of people you've got in charge. And, and I hate to tell you this, folks, if some of you think that a Biden would be a more responsible president, the, the, the people behind the scenes don't change that much. The agenda doesn't change that much. If anything, you would have, unlike the unilateral, I'll do this today and this tomorrow Trump approach, Biden as part of the old guard would be in there with a more concerted effort, maybe with other countries involved. This is how we're gonna isolate China. This is how we're gonna sanction China for its human rights abuses. This is how we're gonna sanction China for its stealing of intellectual property. This is what we're gonna do when China doesn't live up to its agreements and so forth. So this is a very you know, interesting and, and perilous time that we're going into when the powers that be are, have, have made an enemy now of China, right or wrong. I mean, look, I, at least I'll tell you one of the things I do respect, again, about the street fighter, but not great intellect, Donald Trump, is that he has pointed out more than once in talking about China, Mikel, that, hey, we did this. So I don't blame China for taking advantage of us when we gave them the tools to be a world power and a competitor. It's not their fault. And he's, and he's right. He's right. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways that this can go if you have a Biden presidency, but at the same time, a Republican Senate. Some of the growing efforts against China will be more of the strategic and military type. If the Democrat Party on Election Day sweeps the field and you've got that, therefore, a much greater influence of the progressives, the far left, uh, the Looney Tune AOCs and some of the rest of these people uh, in there as a result, it'll be economics, it'll be human rights, they'll want to sanction the shit out of China. They'll, they'll outdo Trump over just human rights. Forget any of the rest of this stuff. Well, I have it all the time that people, you know, say, oh, if we go to war with China, this will happen. If we go to war, it's like, I don't know what you guys are looking at because we are at war. I mean, the country, the U.S. and China are at war. They have been for several years. If you guys can't see that, like, you need to wake up and open your eyes. It's This is, stop looking for World War II. We're not going to get another World War II. There's other ways that this is going to happen. We had Sean McFade on who wrote an entire book about it, and I, I highly uh, encourage people to read it. It's called The New Face of War, and he talks about the war with China and how they're using things like lawfare to scoop up islands in the South China Sea and expand their international waters. And there's so many times where ships are facing off to each other and all it takes is one sleepy kid at 21 years old, you know, at three o'clock in the morning and he hasn't had enough coffee and something happens and there's not a senior officer there to stop him. And the first bullet is fired. I mean, like these are really, really scary things. 
They are. I mean, and then look at anything that China is doing in Africa. Like I invite you guys to look at the UN vote from 30 years ago and a UN vote today and see who Africa is voting with. China has gone in there and they're doing exactly these John Perkins types of things, but the response from the countries and from the people is so different. When the Americans would go in and do these things, they knew that they were monsters. With China, they're going in and they're just giving them stuff for free. And they all seem to think that it's like, uh, a gift from heaven. They're building dams, they're building airports, they're building walls, they're building agriculture, they're building um, water purification plants. I mean, I've traveled through Nigeria multiple times, um, South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Kenya. I mean, you see China equipment and Chinese engineers building roads every day, everywhere. It's unbelievable. And what are they getting in return? They're getting UN votes and they're getting natural resources. They're getting rare earth minerals. And it's all just being shipped to China, just nonstop. And I mean, we have to stop looking at war in the same way that, you know, World War I, World War II was fought. Well, you're absolutely right. And I'll, I'll add a couple of things to that too, Mikkel, about a week and a half or so ago. As uh, this is airing, I was on a uh, call with about 300 or so policymakers and politicians, business people and whatnot. It was put on by Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. Uh, they're a consultancy. They usually have an in-person meeting and conference in Washington in the fall of the year. But like everything, it's virtual uh, this year. And they had, uh, leading that off, they had Lisa Murkowski, the Republican senator from Alaska, and Joe Manchin, uh, the minority leader uh, of that resource committee in the Senate. I forget the exact name of the committee, so forgive me. Uh, you know, he's, he's on that committee as well. They've jointly sponsored a bill dealing with, uh, hopefully, America's uh, mineral security. And it's fairly well known. And, and President Trump and his energy department have done a lot about this, too. So some very, very good work, whether it's in nuclear energy and uranium, whether it's in critical minerals, trying to start to play catch up when we are badly behind. Uh, Simon Moores, who is one of the ringleaders of Benchmark, he made the comment. I'll, I'll paraphrase. I may not get the exact quote right. But basically, he said, we have now been for several years in a global battery arms race with, where the U.S. is basically just a spectator. Yep, this absolutely. year to date, all right, he pointed out one statistic that there have been 38 new battery plants either built or started in China, three in the European Union, two in the United States of America. You know, you look at uranium, just to look at that industry, one fifth of our entire power grid is powered by nuclear energy. We have lots of uranium and uranium capacity in this country, virtually all of which is mothballed because though we use, I think it's a quarter of the world's uranium. Uh, we do none of it pretty much these days here. We import it all. So we have, we have put ourselves in a horrible, horrible position to be able to compete. And I, I think and I hope that for as long as they can do it without the US and, and the people that run this getting desperate that we're so far behind that something is instigated because you can never believe the headlines of how wars start whether it was the sinking of the battleship the Maine, whether it was Pearl Harbor, whether it was Tonkin Gulf in Vietnam, whether it was a bullshit we heard from Bush father and son both 
uh, as excuses to go in the Middle East, you know, something is going to happen. And like you said, it might be as simple as that, that kid in the middle of the night that, that pushes the wrong button or overreacts when a couple of ships are facing off in the South China Sea. We don't know. Um, but yeah, this is going to be a multifaceted war. It already is. It's over minerals. Uh, you, you, you pointed out an extremely important topic that's an investment theme that I think is, is something that will be actionable for people too going forward, really no matter who wins. Uh, and, and that is, where is the U.S. going to get the ability to um, you know, do what we do if we want this Green New Deal? Do, do, the, do the yahoos and the starry-eyed idealists on the liberals in, in Congress and in Hollywood and elsewhere, do they realize that, and I know we're not uh, having a video for everything, but in case we do, there's there's 30 some elements of metals in this phone right here. We've all got one. Where the hell they come from? Well, the rare earth metals are all mined in the Congo and really messed up dangerous places like that. And I mean, the majority of that is all being shipped to China. But then about the, the second yellow metal, I mean, I was friends and, and knew one of the board of directors in Abu Dhabi when I lived there, and they were building 11 nuclear power plants all at the same time. And we used to have long, long conversations about nuclear power. And because I'm an investor and I, I've been in the mining space and certainly not as much as you, sir, but um, read and understand quite a bit about it. And, you know, was talking to him and saying, like, I understand nuclear power is the cleanest, it's the safest, it's the most effective, the most efficient. But where were where were they getting the technology for in the Middle East, building the largest nuclear power plants from South Korea and from China? All of it. I mean, they had two and a half thousand workers from China working around the clock, 24-7 building these plants. And people say, you know, uh, the U.S., you know, we're, we're, in this, we're in this race. No, you guys... The U.S. has lost nuclear power. That war is over. Technology in the United States for nuclear power is many, many, many years behind. Other countries out there, they're not buying nuclear power plants. They're not buying the, the technology from the United States. Forget about it. And then if you want to talk about the other yellow metal, I mean, look at the other countries where this comes from. Like, it's what, in Kazakhstan and other stand countries and stuff like that, if I'm not mistaken. I mean... Even geographically, like we're we don't have we're nowhere close. Where where are they going to be going? They're going to be going through Russia. They're going to be you know this is going to be the new um, Silk Road type of initiative that's going through. Um, the U.S. is being left behind. Well, we did, and and we did that to ourselves under past governance, past administrations. Unfortunately, thinking that we we've got the military and the dollars is the world's reserve currency, and we can exert our will wherever we want it. So who cares if if we uh, do any of this stuff in our country? You know, and a lot of people are hypocrites. You know, especially the you got the Hollywood stars and starlets and the Green New Deal starry-eyed people. We don't want extractive industries. We don't want this. We don't want that. But the Hollywood stars telling us this have got, you know, multiple residences and they use more fossil fuels than 10,000 average people do, you know, et cetera. I can go on with those examples. You know, in, in the Congo, you know that a lot of these rare earth minerals that are mined aren't done under the best of conditions and circumstances for the people doing the work. Uh, but that's okay. We don't care if it happens over there. In fact, that's one of the things that, that's, that's most galling about some of this woke 
bullshit that we hear these days and all of this political correctness. You know, the, the people that are so concerned uh, about making sure that as white folks, we flog ourselves and repent of all of our real and imagined <laughs> sins over time. Self-flagellation, yeah. Yeah, and yet they're perfectly happy to have people in other lands suffer if it makes us feel good because we don't see anything right in front of us that is a consequence of what we want and what we want to do. Like I said, everybody wants one of these things, but they don't want to know about, you know, kids who have lost their childhood. I heard a great one the other day, this uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, the, the Swedish girl that's been the, the climate change heroine. And I don't say anything personally against her. She's being handled massage to sell a, a message. But she made a comment one day that I've lost my childhood. Really tell a little seven or eight black Congo kid <laughs> who's who's full of dirt and mercury and everything else going out and getting rarers for your damn phone. Yeah, exactly. You, that kid didn't lose his childhood, all right? Or the Colin Kaepernick's to tell us they're all about racial justice and they kneel for the national anthem and all this kind of stuff. Colin Kaepernick, LeBron James, and these people with their checks from Nike they benefit from more slave labor, more people working for them to send them their checks so they can spout off than, than any Southern plantation owner ever had. They got way more slaves that make their sneakers under conditions that were outlawed in the U.S. three or four generations ago. Well, I think that's the amazing thing because, I mean, people want to talk a certain narrative and be so self-righteous. But, I mean, there's just so many people who don't do any research and they're not pulling back the rug at all and really looking at things. So, I mean, before you start pointing fingers at other people or different organizations, you know, take a look at yourself because like, I don't want to go on a tangent here about this. Like, and I do want to circle back about the investment side, but I think you're bringing up some really important parts. This is really not a left, right. This is humanity. This is rich, poor, and there is a narrative that is being pushed on people. So, okay. So let's, let's dig into the investments. Um, because I think we've painted a, a very good picture here. What do you think is going to happen? What should we see from the markets or what should we expect to see from the markets going forwards? Well, first of all, keep in mind, and this kind of goes back to my own foundational understanding that I mentioned again when we started this, Mikel, but you know, whether it's Donald Trump crowing about how great the stock market has been or his detractors saying it's all smoke and mirrors, the fact is neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden is Fed chairman. You don't need to know a whole lot more than that. All right. The Federal Reserve can make and break presidents. You know, uh, Jimmy Carter to this day has got the worst bum rap in history of any president because he gets blamed for the high interest rates and high inflation and stagflation and whatnot in the late 70s, something that he tried to control after he inherited it. The people that caused that were Richard Nixon and Nixon's Fed chairman, Arthur Burns, when Nixon closed the gold window and Burns started cranking the printing presses and creating all those dollars. That's what Carter had to deal with. He didn't start that. And likewise, now you have a Donald Trump who, when he was running for president, warned that the stock market was potentially a bubble because it was all artificial because of zero interest rates. He's president. He wants more of it. Let's, let's make a bigger bubble, you know. He's a guy who, uh, you know, has, uh, has played fast and loose with debt and all of his businesses and casinos and whatnot and thinks that's just how things work. So, first of all, as far as the Fed is concerned, when you go back to, it's a little over a year ago, 
and this is before we'd ever heard of this uh, uh, COVID-19 stuff. It's before this whole pandemic and the forced uh, shutdown and self-inflicted depression that we now see millions of Americans in. In September of last year, 2019, out of nowhere, Fed Chairman Powell started taking some action in what is called the repo markets in the U.S. And he, he described it at the time as a plumbing problem a plumbing problem that required hundreds of billions of dollars of cash injected by the Fed. Well, why? It's because when you have a fraction reserve system nearing its end game, and you can only take on so much debt if you're a person or business or whatever, and you know how much more do you need? How much more stuff can you buy and whatnot? You start to have a problem where you go from a place where forget that all of the debts in the, on the planet, hundreds of trillions of dollars, really, when you add it all up, forget about it ever being paid. Now you're at a point where it can't even be serviced and things start to break. Okay. So when the pandemic came about and the Fed created all of these new tools, which we, we thought quantitative easing after 2008 was novel, that was baby stuff compared to the stuff the Fed has done since. Okay. Now you've got a situation where the Fed is backstopping almost everything. I've actually joked that, you know, if uh, I've got a few people locally, I play poker with once a week, kind of a social thing. The most anybody wins or loses a night, maybe 15, 18, $20, you know, something like that. And, uh, but if you're, if you're a gambler and you've got a, a, a buddy of yours that zigged when he should have zagged and, and just gave you an IOU says, Hey, I'm short right now, but I'll make it up to you, Mikel. Just take that to the fed window and they'll monetize that along with all the other crap <laughs> that they've got to get behind now. Cause they got no choice. Okay. So we're at a place where we now are truly in overdrive as far as the fed trying to paper everything over. They desperately want the president and Congress, it won't happen until next year, to get together and do something of substance to sop up some of this excess credit. The thing on most people's minds, and my own included, would be major infrastructure spending, which the country needs and which politically would be easier to sell for all of this money printing, you know, not just print up money so Wall Street gets richer and all the rest of us, you know, suck kind, you know what at the same time, but, but yeah, yeah. These PPP I mean, and we got energy, we got things, yeah. energy alone. I mean, there, there are incredible needs and opportunities going forward. If whatever the next mix of dinglings that get elected can get together and figure this out. Finally, you've got industries that are already being born. We see it in the electric vehicle industry and so forth. Uh, thanks to Trump's energy department, they are trying belatedly to catch up. You've got a company called New Scale that is actually now getting help from the federal government to build the first modular nu nuclear reactors in the U.S. So we're belatedly trying to make up for lost time, but there's a lot of catching up to do. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, solid 30 years. Yeah. So, well, and, and on that point, I mean, talking about the energy, we're helping just a ton of people from California leave right now. And I mean, I'm literally getting messages from people where they're just rolling blackouts. And I'm like, okay, I love my, I love the planet. You know, I'm, I recycle and, and 
I like all of this type of stuff. However, I, I also like to be a bit of a realist and, and I'm not just going to, to, to jump in that everything needs to be done on uh, wind and solar because in a lot of cases they don't make sense. And when you look at this Green New Deal and what they're proposing and you know Biden coming out and saying, no, I, I don't support the Green New Deal, I support the Biden deal. But if you look at it, it is the same horse shit just with a different name. And I mean... It's, it's really kooky, like what they're proposing to do. And I'm like, people have been accustomed to a certain style of life, you know, for the mayor of, I, I can't remember if it was the mayor or the governor coming out in and saying, you know, okay, it's five o'clock. Everybody needs to turn their electricity off, turn their lights off. You know, everybody's got to uh, save power here. And I'm like, I'm laughing. I'm on Twitter going, you know, Thank goodness I live in the developing world, in a third world country, where we get 24 hours uh, electricity, you know? Well, you know, Mikkel, there's a couple parts of that. First of all, I very much believe that we need to make sustainability long-term and the health of the planet a part of anything that is done. Not superficially with pie-in-the-sky stuff that's not based on real world and economics. Exactly. But doing it right. I, I like things that are based on reality. It's amazing to just go out there and just, you know, think up some crazy stuff. But like, what's the actual plan? Like, how is this actually going to become a reality? Right. Like, how, how are you going to really work? You know, uh, this last spring, uh, to the consternation of a lot of his fellow travelers among leftists, Michael Moore enabled a film to come out called Planet of the Humans. Did you see that? I missed it. I missed it. You need to watch that. All right. He thoroughly pissed off a lot of the leftists that usually support him because the gist of the movie basically was this pie in the sky stuff that, oh, we, we can be overconsumptive and destroy the planet. But if we make ourselves feel good by saying we can live on just wind and solar power going forward, we'll feel good and we'll subsidize that. It's not workable. It's been demonstrated not to be workable. Newsom out in California had to admit that recently. Germany had to admit that recently, which hypocritically takes a lot of nuclear-generated juice from France, right? Yeah, well, they want to close down all make, of their plants. And make I'm going, things less bad. Well, that they've they've now quietly backed away from that because it's not realistic. Well, that was all around that Fukushima stuff, and people were freaking out. And yeah, of course it was. You know, when you when you had that accident happen, which you know, not to get too far off on just this one thing, the Fukushima Daiichi plant melted down because a backup power source failed, not because of anything to do with the plant itself, which in any event was old and was getting ready to be decommissioned, but by all other means was still safe. And when you point to that and say, "Oh, nuclear power is bad," that's like saying if you've got you know, 50-year-old car that you've never changed the oil on and it's rickety and you take it out in the road and it breaks down, cars are bad. Yeah, exactly, start banning cars. No, new cars aren't bad. Nothing wrong with them. They're good. Okay? It was just that old clunker that maybe should have retired a little bit sooner. So I think people are starting to get their heads out of the rear end, though, on nuclear energy. I just, I've got a re new report out right now on the on the nuclear energy sector worldwide. Extremely bullish industry going mm -hmm. forward. Well, and the only country that I've been seeing that is actually doing quite well with electric vehicles and electric cars and batteries is China. I mean, we've been going to China. My, my wife is from China. We own properties there. I've been there 20, 30 times, um, you know, I've been going there for 10, 15 years. I remember walking down Beijing and you would never see the sky. It was gray, smog. I mean, we were there last year, blue skies. But what did they do? They replaced 
all of public transport. They've done um, hybrid vehicles. I mean, they're going into it in a big way. But that's a communist country, a one-party system country. And, you know, when they get behind something, you got to hand it to China. They go all in. Like, like th there's no question about that. And, and once again, I am not supporting communism, people. Don't send me hate no, mail. But, but let me... Let me even put an asterisk uh, for exactly that reason next to what you just said. I don't remember who wrote it, but years ago, and I say this editorial, I think it is a terrible misnomer today in 2020 to refer to communist as a quote China, uh, to China rather as a quote communist country. Maybe their pol political system, the, the, the way they control information and so forth, but they are very much a, a, a nationalist economy. Even a quote, you know, we get so many words that are thrown around today because people get mad, have utterly no idea their historical meaning. China is a fascist country, a fascist country in a good sense as it once was historically understood, where you have a command and control economy from the top down, where the ultimate goals of the country and the people are what count. All right. The problem, and that's why they are so far ahead of the U.S., in what they're doing, because the U.S., which has a quote capitalist system, which you know is barf making, you, people need to understand here again terminology. Capitalism is a bad thing. Free enterprise is good. Capitalism is just the other's opposite side of the coin of communism, where you've got a handful of people that benefit. And the problem in our capitalist system here is that the objectives are not the people; the objectives are capital. Okay. So when we have dragged our feet for so many years on keeping up with China in the new battery arms race, we've been keeping up with China and Russia and, and, and other countries on, on nuclear energy and so forth, it's not because we don't have the ability in this country to do those same things. We led the world in nuclear energy once upon a time. It's because the people who always get their palms greased and they're passing envelopes back and forth under the table they don't give a shit about that or what's good for the country. It's what they continue to subsidize and get graft from. You know, it was probably, I don't know how many years ago, uh, every now and then I, I watch C-SPAN, not as much anymore because I got tired of the whole political thing. But back in the years when I had to do it more, I would watch it more. And Marcy Kaptur, who's a Democrat congresswoman from Ohio, the longest serving woman in the House, of representatives. She gave a speech that everybody should have had committed to memory and everybody should have been all over their Republican and Democrat representatives over in the years since. She said basically, and this was going back a good 15, 18 years ago, that we're in serious trouble. She mentioned falling behind China. She mentioned nuclear energy. She mentioned an over-reliance on fossil fuels and now this insanity of how we have force-fed the energy industry with this fracking, which is going to flame out, and we're going to be in a terrible fix with shortages of oil and gasoline in a few more years. People don't understand that yet. She said, we've got to look at our long-term energy needs by the decades going forward and treat this as every bit as seriously as we did the space program and every bit as seriously as we did the Marshall Plan after the end of World War II. But you know what? Because of our, quote, capitalist system, we didn't do it because it wasn't in the interest of people that control things and profit from things as they are now. And we're going to pay a terrible price for that. OK, so let's dig in for a couple of investments 
if the left gets in, a couple of investments or sectors maybe if the right gets in. Because I, I do think that we, we painted that picture, like I said earlier. But I mean, as much as you're able to share, I don't know, you know, uh, of course, this is not finan individual financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor, but anything that you can speak to us about, um, I think is valuable. Well, looking at things as themes, first of all, Mikkel, one of the things that, to his credit, Barack Obama started and President Trump, by and large, has continued, is that we've removed a lot of the red tape from the uh, healthcare industry and from biotech companies. Still probably not enough. A lot of U.S.-based companies will still go elsewhere, especially to Australia, when it comes to early trials, because there's a much better system and much better subsidies there. But things are going in the right direction. And no matter what happens to the markets, no matter what happens to the price of gas or price of a house or whatever, we are in an extremely exciting time right now of seeing companies not just coming out with better treatments for diseases, but borderline cures. To this day, the most profitable company I've ever recommended is a biotech called Sarepta Therapeutics, which really hit the big time. What's the ticker symbol? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll give you those. Sarepta is SRPT on the NASDAQ. Okay. I first met this company over 20 years ago and got to understand their RNA-based medicine. Long story short, for time's sake, when in 2012, they came out with their first major trial results showing not only the stopping of muscle loss in muscular dystrophy patients, but fooling the body with their drug to actually grow muscle tissue, that stock in a few months' time went from under $2 a share to 60 It's been up and down over the years. I recently had people sell it again at 160 and so what's that? A 33,000% increase. A lot of, and we've, and we've, I've traded it very well over the years too. When it got a little bit overwieldy, I tell people to sell most of it or all of it and go back down, get back. As recently as 2016, we got back into it at 10 bucks and within a year and a half it was 170. Um, but they're, they're a Cadillac. I mean, and this is a, com a company that because of its science, Mikkel was able to have muscle tissue grow anew in patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Now one of, now they're one of the leaders in gene uh, therapy as well. So I've got others on my list. Uh, one company, these names I can't give you <laughs> for my newsletter yeah, audience. And, and this is an opportune time. Um, we at uh, Expat Money Show and Escape Artists are very fortunate to have partnered with Chris and actually offer Chris's newsletter to our audience at a very, very reasonable price. If you go to escapeartist.store and type in the National Investor, it'll come up in the search. Or if you just scroll through the page, you'll find it on there. And I mean... It is a unbelievable newsletter. It is worth every single penny. I am a subscriber. I read the newspaper, the newsletter myself. So that is fully an endorsement from from my side to to pick this up. Well, th thank you, Mikkel. And for that, I'll actually give you one more name <laughs> <laughs> for our listeners too. Uh, a company that is also on my list is perhaps the one that before terribly much longer will have the first meaningful drug to treat Alzheimer's disease wow. on which numerous companies to date have tried and failed. But they just had a major breakthrough with Parkinson's disease dementia, 
which caused their stock to go up about 60% uh, when that came out. But that company's name is Anavex Life Sciences, A-V-X-L is the symbol. Uh, I've also got a couple companies on my list. One of them that, that this is especially close to my heart because I lost a son at the end of last year from long-term complications of type 1 diabetes. I've got a company on my list that very few people know of yet, but they're farther along in human trials on what, for simplicity's sake right now, I'll call an artificial pancreas. They've had a couple of major collaborations recently. A major drug company just put one of their top people on a special board of this company. So that could be the next monster home run. Uh, in the biotech space. So that, those are that's an area where it doesn't really matter as much to political flavor and seasons and so forth. And, and the other major theme, I guess, Mikkel, I want to talk about is energy. And I'm using a broad brush. Um, whether we like it or not, this country has got some hard decisions to make and a lot of money and, and, and things to get behind as a country so that we don't end up in a stone age relative to other countries like China that are way ahead of us. And so one of the themes, and again, this is something that was started by President Trump that will unquestionably continue, perhaps with more energy and more focus under even a President Biden, if that's what it ends up to be, but it's going to happen under Trump also, is that we're going to have, we're going to have that belated Marshall Plan space program kind of thing, because we have no choice in this country, uh, you know, to, to figure out where in the hell we're going to meet our energy needs and so forth going forward. I mean, you've got the Trump just recently signed an executive order to try and uh, call attention to our lack of security on so many critical minerals. You're going to see, and this is going to be interesting because we've already been flanked by China in places like Africa, as you've pointed out. The Trump State Department has been trying to get South America back more under U.S. influence. That's going to be an interesting thing to watch going forward. And a lot of this is going to be hemispheric. We may have to just basically, as a country with our influence and, and companies, I don't know that Africa, for the most part, can be reclaimed um, at this point in time. But we have to make an attempt to regalvanize things in our own hemisphere. Uh, notably, President Trump and Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada a while back signed an agreement to cooperate on critical minerals and on mineral security. I think you're going to see several North American, not just U.S.-centric, though we'll have that as well. You're going to see several North American corridors open up. It's going to be the whole food chain for battery metals, everything from mining the materials and metals for it, to the batteries, to the vehicles. Uh, that's starting to accelerate. Uh, one of the companies on my recommended list, I hope you bought some of this, uh, Piedmont Lithium, that has a great project in North Carolina. I was pounding the table on this stock during the summer at five or six bucks a share. All of a sudden, several weeks ago, they're halted. The news comes out that they just entered an off-take agreement with Tesla, wow. which wants some of their product. And the stock, when it opened back up, it went over 40 uh, a share. Uh, it's since fluttered back down, and it's still probably going to be a good long-term investment. We sold half of what we had when it was up around 40, but we're keeping a rest uh, because it, it's still got a great long-term future. But you look at the Southeast U.S., and you've got several car makers that have opened up plants. They're converting uh, traditional plants to EV-based ones. Uh, Volkswagen, in Ch I think it's in Chattanooga, is spending a big slug of money just for a battery facility 
uh, outside Chattanooga. So we're, this is coming. It's late. It's very late. We've got a lot of catching up to do. But if the next administration and mix on Capitol Hill, whoever the hell it ends up being, you know, uh, can get their act half together, there is going to be monstrous growth uh, as this country catches up in, in electric vehicles and mineral security and rare earths processing, not just uh, uh, mining, but rare earths processing and a whole lot of other things. So that probably, but you, you put that alongside the biotech area, and th this is where you can find, embrace themes and stories of individual companies that transcend whatever the politics are. Lastly, as far as a big picture thing, and I'm putting out some special issues between now and the end of the year to talk about this, you know, I, I think that the route that we're going with our financial system, what the Fed is up to and so forth, we're gonna kind of have a stagflation light kind of environment where some of the same patterns that we saw in the 70s are repeated. We're not going to have the extremes of double-digit inflation, double-digit in interest rates. Mathematically, that's not a possibility, uh, believe it or not. I know some people argue, well, what if what if China dumps all the rest of the treasury bonds it's got? Well, if, if they did, which they probably won't, but if they did, the Fed monetize it. The Fed, all right, they put a little bookkeeping entry and the Fed takes yeah. the Chinese yeah. interest in treasuries. The markets won't ever even know it. So, uh, but they're going to keep printing lots of money. They're going to come up with better ways that it affects more people and more real-world economic activity. And look, with the kind of system we have that some people with what the Fed is doing incorrectly call modern monetary theory, which is a whole other podcast you and I are going to have to do. To <laughs> Otherwise known like as magic. <laughs> right. Because uh, what the Fed is doing sure as hell isn't what I consider modern monetary yeah. theory. Um but, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have lots of money sloshing around. It's still going to create dislocations in markets. It still has the ever-present risk of markets imploding because the Fed itself has made them so unstable. But it also means that there's a lot of new credit out there, and it's going to go someplace. And, you know, the job of wise investors or the job of me trying to guide wise investors and, and get more right than wrong myself is to just use our common sense and, again, get rid of labels and politics, just use our head and say, all right, where's, where's all this going? And, and try and get there before most other people do. Perfect. Chris, I love it. Super interesting conversation. I always love our talks. You're so smart, and I always learn so much from you. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? Just go to nationalinvestor.com. And uh, you, there's a lot of recent stuff that's on the front page of my website that's not blocked for members only, like most of my recommendations are, the specific ones. And uh, there's a link on there if you want to subscribe to get my various investment recommendations, you can do that also. But better to do it you do it through uh, Mikel's store. Yeah, exactly. We've got a special price and there's some other yep. bonuses and things that go along with that. But once again, I highly recommend... Uh, Everybody check out Chris's work. It is well worth reading. And uh, he doesn't hold back in the newspaper, just like he didn't hold back today. So in the newsletter, excuse me, uh, like he did today. So Chris, thank you so much for your time. And I will talk to you again soon, okay? My pleasure. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. I want to remind you that if you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you're going to be able to download our special report. 
It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It has been a project of mine I have been working on for maybe four years now, and I constantly update this with the newest and best strategies. Now, it's really different than a lot of other special reports or books out there because this one is really short, and it is short on purpose. What I want to do is kind of highlight to you the best of the best strategies that are out there in the world, and then where you can go for additional information or how you can get involved in these things. So instead of writing a 500-page special report on this, which probably chances are no one is going to read it, this is really highly condensed information. I've actually put it in an infographic. It's an infographic special report. Uh, it has helped thousands upon thousands of people really get a grasp of being an expat and what type of things are out there to protect your assets, professionals that you should be working with, investments, real estate, these types of things. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can pick it up at expatmoneyshow.com. You'll see it. It's on the very first page at the very top. All you need to do is put in your name and email address. You're going to get a chance to actually join my private email list, EMS Pulse. And there's just so much great things that are shared on there. It's completely free. There's no funnel. There's no trick to this. There's no credit card needed, anything like that. It's just a good resource for you, my listener, who I love and adore, and I want to do right by you guys. So go to expatmoneyshow.com, pick this up. Let me know what you think. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.